1: Coming up, Marina Hyde on the not-so-shocking incompetence laid bare by the COVID inquiry. Zoe Williams turns the tables on veteran interviewer Louis Theroux. And Elle Hunt reflects on Matthew Perry's troubled life and foreshadowed death.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per
3: month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of very bad language in this episode. Now... Last week's COVID Inquiry hosted a parade of men who assure us they're experts in everything. Except, points out Marina Hyde, their own incompetence. Read by Serena Manteghi.
3: Last Tuesday at the COVID Inquiry was Men Who Think About the Roman Empire Day. Dominic Cummings presents as a man who thinks of the Roman Empire so often that a big part of him believes he actually came up with the Roman Empire. In the end, though, he couldn't save Rome from itself, because everyone else in it were either useless fuckpigs, morons, or cunts. He and former Downing Street comms chief Lee Kane Kane did their best to hold off the Dark Ages – but ultimately, were vanquished by the hordes of barbarians. Slash decided to leave and start a boutique corporate PR consultancy. Sick transit Gloria Mundi, as Boris Johnson might say, because he knows Latin. The only thing this cavalcade of know-alls didn't seem to know is the first thing about themselves. Turns out Boris Johnson accused Cummings of being part of an orgy of narcissism. So the former PM can add irony to his tally of pandemic kills. Speaking of which, we learned from the diary of the government's former chief scientist Patrick Vallance that Johnson came to believe that Covid was nature's way of dealing with old people. Yes, if you were one of the many, many old people who voted for Boris Johnson in 2019, last week was the moment it formally emerged that he was extremely relaxed about you moving on to the Great Suckers Convention in the sky. But could the former PM settle an argument? By extension, was it nature's way that Johnson himself came so close to death, before nature pulled out of the move and allowed him to nature's way tens of thousands more people unnecessarily because he was too morally and intellectually weak to take a decision? If so... Think of this theory as survival of the shittest. As the pandemic approached, then raged, no one, from the Prime Minister to the Cabinet Secretary to the Health Secretary, seems to have realised how bad they specifically were at their own jobs. Now that we're seeing some of the receipts for their backstage chaos and deadly incompetence, the major takeaways are this country's systemic inadequacy, and the sheer monumental unsuitability of the specific set of people charged with dealing with the crisis. It's like putting the real housewives in charge of the Manhattan Project. Anyway, Cummings. Here he was, Robert Stroppenheimer, getting away quite lightly on his character-led failings by being asked about messages, like the one about former Deputy Cabinet Secretary Helen McNamara, which ended... I don't care how it's done, but that woman must be out of our hair. We cannot keep dealing with this horrific meltdown of the British state while dodging stilettos from that cunt. Perhaps this is what George Osborne was teasing on his podcast last week when he said that the Covid inquiry was soon to learn of WhatsApps containing some really pretty disgusting language and misogynistic language. This obviously means so much more coming from the guy who once said, He wouldn't rest until Theresa May was chopped up in bags in my freezer. But for what it's worth, I don't think those specific remarks of Cummings or Osborne were misogynist. With Cummings, stilettos as knives make more sense in this context than stilettos as shoes. Although, I always enjoy the bits of Dominic's output where he remembers he needs to mention a brilliant young woman. Or the need to free Britney and would definitely read the first paragraph of any 20,000-word blog on why actually he thinks Brie Larson is the best hero in the MCU. I do, however, think it was notable, in this day and age, that every single Downing Street pandemic press conference, bar one, was fronted by a male politician. Covid decision-making didn't pass the Bechdel test. The mood was months and months and months of guys who knew best standing at a podium, telling the public they had it all under control. Look, you know, I'm a big advocate for this kind of positive discrimination, but hearing about the backstage bitching, the emotionalism, the cliques, the endless drama, well, like me, you may be wondering if men are really suited to these important jobs. Might they not be happier simply staying at home? In terms of what transferable skills the key players have, it's not immediately clear after Covid's full-spectrum disaster class. Actually, hang on, everyone from the Prime Minister to the Cabinet Secretary to Cummings has the chaotic energy of reality TV contestants. No wonder Matt Hancock can currently be found on his second reality TV show, while Johnson reportedly got quite far down the line mulling an appearance on this year's I'm a Celebrity. Alas, for now, we had to endure a lament from Kane that for a man of Johnson's skill set, Covid was unfortunately the wrong crisis, a rebuke to fate for failing to furnish the Boris story with a more flattering plot device. The alternative reading is that disaster of one sort or another was guaranteed the second these guys helped elect a newspaper columnist to run a country. Then again, Cummings is a man bizarrely obsessed with journalists, who, honestly, just don't matter. I find it absolutely mind-boggling that he recently bothered putting my name onto some shit list of his. What on earth is he doing giving one millionth of a toss one way or the other what I write? It's some jokes about the news. Surely he should at least give the impression that he has bigger fish to fry. But perhaps that's the definitive character note. Someone with a big brain who's incapable of resisting smallness. For me, the most depressing thing about the revelations at the inquiry last week, and no doubt for many weeks and months to come, is that they are not really revelations. The government was horrendously incompetent, didn't have a plan, yet still wasted a huge amount of time and a tragic number of lives on mad posturing pointless turf wars, or buck-passing and catastrophic infighting. The sad fact is that all of this was said at the time, and all of it was denied repeatedly by those in charge. And it was denied not just in insidery lobby briefings or to individual journalists, but live on air, to the nation, in those wretched press conferences every night. They lied about everything. All the time. And the lies they told backstage were just the obverse of the ones they spouted front of house. Seeing inquiry witnesses fated for punchy WhatsApps now is a bit like congratulating a serial killer for switching to an energy-efficient chest freezer. I'm sure half of them will be reflecting amiably on the period on their inevitable podcasts in due course, But the British public deserve so much more. As they did at the time.
1: That was... Let's ease up on Johnson & Cummings. Covid was just the wrong crisis for them, OK? By Marina Hyde. Read by Serena Mantegui. Next. Louis Theroux's signature mix of charm and cheek has made him one of the best interviewers in the game. Will he take it on the chin when the tables are turned? Zoe Williams finds out. Read by Laura Shavin.
4: Louis Theroux wants to ask me something. Are you not curious about my eyebrow? We are technically in the last minute of our conversation, after which you'll go to the East London studio next door to be photographed. In fact, we'll talk for slightly longer, as I've yet to elaborate my theory that everything that went both right and wrong for Generation X was, if not caused, then certainly represented by him. I'm not going to tell you now because you didn't ask, he continues. But he can't let it go. Have you not followed me on Instagram? Actually, I have, so I know it's alopecia. He's had it since January and worries about it a lot, initially because it made his beard grow into a tiny and slightly lopsided Hitler moustache. Seriously, though, you can hardly see it. I would never ask that, I say. Why? Because it's rude. It's not rude to ask. It's rude to expect an answer. OK, I don't know the difference between those things, I say. He pauses, then demonstrates. Can I ask you a question about your hair and feel free not to answer? Sure. Sure. Do you diet? Yes. There. That wasn't hard. He thinks he's proved his own point. He's actually proved mine. Only Louis Theroux can interview like Louis Theroux. He never sounds rude or cheap or critical, and he often sounds a bit random, so subjects faced with the combination of his total acceptance and a naive curiosity it would be churlish not to indulge slip into the conversation like a warm bath and maybe the inveterate liars among those subjects might continue to lie, and maybe some people, even at their most honest, are less interesting than others, but they always show themselves. During a Q&A after a screening of the new season of Louis Theroux interviews the following week, he makes a distinction between his documentary style, distilled in his very first work for camera three decades ago on Michael Moore's TV Nation – where he'd do breathtaking segments on, say, the Ku Klux Klan, and his encounters with celebrities, which this series include the boxer Anthony Joshua, Joan Collins, singer Ray, actor and rapper Ashley Walters, Pete Doherty and Chelsea Manning. His documentaries, he says, were the easiest job in the world. If I turn up at San Quentin Prison, I just say, what did you do? Why did you do that? Really? What's that man doing? He contrasts that with set-piece interviews with people like Chelsea Manning. I own that occasion. I can't come across as cringing or anxious. I'm not so sure. To my eye, Theroux alters remarkably little from one context to another, one era to another. Whether as a specky British nobody going behind the scenes in the porn industry in the late 90s, or an accomplished transatlantic somebody interviewing people who are objectively a lot less famous than him in the 2020s, his manner is unchanged. Completely non-judgmental, any self-consciousness camouflaged beneath comic self-deprecation, he is utterly intrusive, but in a way that is charming, like a dog who bowls up and sticks its nose in your pocket. There's a lovely moment in the Anthony Joshua interview When Theroux asks straight out whether one of the world's best heavyweight boxers thinks he could beat him in a fight, Joshua says yes, he could, but not because he doubts Theroux's strength, just because he probably doesn't have a boxing IQ. It's not a revealing moment in the classic sense, because obviously Joshua could beat Theroux, but you see a lot of the boxer's character in his tactful, funny, considered answer, which you have to admit is what the whole thing's supposed to be about. Louis Theroux grew up in South London. His father, novelist and travel writer Paul Theroux, is from Massachusetts, and his mother is the British journalist, therapist and writer Anne Theroux. I actually went to the same primary school as him, a standard Wandsworth 70s state school that socialist boho parents sent their kids to before sending them private. My mum was left-wing, a socialist, he says. My dad was politically undefinable, a free-thinker, a literary novelist. Yeah, I've heard of your dad. You should be interviewing him. He's really interesting. I was taken out aged about eight or nine, he says of the school. It was a big wrench. My recollection of primary school is that I was really happy there. And then I went off to this prep school and I wasn't happy. I really wanted to fit in. I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I thought, I can do this. I'll just copy what everybody else is doing and I think I overcompensated, and I got the nickname Posh Claude, because I was trying so hard to be posh. It was definitely the unhappiest time in my childhood. Home life was fine, I just wasn't happy at school. Theroux then describes a short story his father wrote called Children in this very equanimous way. He's a bit of an Anglophile, and he liked the idea of us learning Latin and getting a classical education. But at the same time, he's a working-class boy from Medford, deeply distrustful of authority, so he was conflicted. And he'd overhear us, all the kids, saying, ''Where are you going on skiing holiday? Oh no, Closters is rubbish.'' Basically, he's got a story about a father putting his kids in a private school and then being dismayed by them becoming little twerps, which, I think, a fraction of a pause, Theroux's comic pause deployment is fabulous, may be founded in fact. There is something in the extensive chronicling, the soup-to-nuts transparency of the Theroux family that must a. be hard to live with, and b. create an unusual tension between the public and the private. Not only would very close readers of Paul Theroux's work know that he maybe sometimes thought his sons were twerps, they would also have a partial but legible account of the parents' marriage, which became more complete two years ago when Anne wrote The Year of the End, Detailing infidelities on both sides, it wasn't necessarily untypical of 70s and 80s marital turbulence. It was confusing. A lot of men and women who thought they were feminists had actually been forged in the patriarchal 50s. But of course, it's unusual for it to be in the public domain. Technically, in a strict legal sense, I believe they got divorced in 1993, Theroux says. But they'd been separated from about 89, 90... My mum sometimes would joke that when we left home, my dad thought, I'll do that as well. He'd gone to Oxford by this time. But here's the thing they were very good parents, and even though there were ups and downs with respect to infidelities and definitely arguments, it was all within the bandwidth of normal. Normal is a terrible word. But I guess the best way of putting it would be, I do feel lucky for feeling loved. I was in the lucky position of taking that for granted. In the event, he says. When they split up, I thought, this is different, this is a plot twist. I felt fairly boring before that. Me being able to say to my girlfriend, I think I'm going to go down to London this weekend and make sure my mum's alright, put me in an unexpected caretakey role that felt pretty cool. It's still tricky though. Two and a half memoirists in a family of four writers Louis has written Gotta Get Through This and Through the Keyhole in 2019 and 2021. The second chronicler is Anne. Paul is half a memoirist in the sense that if you were poring over his work for autobiographical clues, you'd find them. Only Louis's brother Marcel Theroux writes novels you couldn't say that about. Who's trespassing on whose memories, if everyone's at it? I'm definitely not going to umpire that ethical conundrum, he says decisively. Well... He wouldn't be allowed to umpire it. Right, yes, I'd be on the pitch. OK, good. So I don't have to. Never minding ethics, it makes sense of one thing Louis Theroux's guileless, surely you don't mind telling me this thing delivery. He has this foundational belief that is deeper than self confidence. Sooner or later, everyone's going to tell everybody everything. We're going to take a short break
1: now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.
1: Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Louis Theroux.
4: After Theroux finished at university, he toyed with the idea of a regular career. My parents weren't judgmental. I think if I had been gay, they might even have quite liked it, for example. But the one time I saw a bit of judgment was I saw a thing on TV about how hard the civil service exam is. I thought... I'm pretty good at exams and I like the idea of taking a really hard exam and a job that required that. So I said to my mum, I'm thinking about joining the civil service, there's this really hard exam. And she said, no, I don't think that's for you. That was like the bridge too far. Instead, he went to the US, got a job assisting an artisanal glassblower and had a period of writing down pensées in a notebook Got a letter from a friend in London and she'd started doing reviews for Time Out and I had a pang of jealousy and almost competitive anxiety. He got a job on a weekly newspaper in San Jose and by the time he was making films for TV Nation, that was pretty much the die cast. He had a peculiar gift for getting under the skin of subcultures, cracking open worlds with his charm that we definitely wouldn't have been able to enter without it and may not have realised we wanted to. This led to the BBC's Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends in the late 90s, fish out of water explorations of misfit worlds, white separatism, rap, born-again Christianity. It's a kind of travel, if I can put it a bit pompously. You're traveling through a world, it's rule-based and culture-based, and you can plot a little journey as you learn the words and practices and discover the forms of honor and the pitfalls and the self-sabotaging qualities. It often struck me that so many of the worlds I was looking at required you to adopt a new name, whether it was gangster rap or wrestling, boxing to an extent. It's an identity that you're taking on. That makes it somewhat voluntary and prevents the story from being overly ethnographic. Why are you laughing? I'm laughing at the idea that travel would be too pompous, but overly ethnographic would be fine. Let's say you were to do a story about the Amish. Because that's a culture you're born into. No one's really exercising a great deal of free will in terms of the practices. Your journalistic leverage in conversations like that. Why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. Have you ever thought about going back to the old way? All of that has less merit in it. I think that's clear, right? Actually, yes. There is a moral clarity to his oeuvre. He is very exacting about his terms of engagement. He can only ridicule people in arenas they've entered by choice. And he, by and large, white supremacists aside, does it with love. This is the bit that I think is the best and worst of Generation X, as personified by Louis Theroux. That we have this generationally heightened sense of the absurd, and it made a lot of discourse that was previously very tedious and cold suddenly very funny and warm. But it takes a civic toll when you don't take anything seriously. You're basically absent from the political sphere. The only Louis Theroux film I've ever found depressing is the one from a Miami mega-jail. There's another in San Quentin, and truthfully they're both pretty grim, but Miami was so brutal, so counter to any principle of decency in incarceration, that it simply didn't do justice to the injustice to see it handled in that trademark non-judgmental way. I wanted someone to say, this is wrong. You wanted to see John Pilger in there, Theroux asks, or Paul Foote, I suggest. Paul Foot would be perfect. Get him in there, he agrees enthusiastically, exploring the idea. He'd be perfect, other than being dead. Even him dead would be better than me alive. I bet Theroux would be really fun in a meeting, and I bet you'd come out having decided to do it his way, having forgotten what your point was. The much more ubiquitous talking point of that question, what are the hard limits of playful neutrality, was the Jimmy Savile interview of 2000. It was the starting gun of BBC Two's When Louis Met series, and it was magnetically, spectacularly weird. Saville, irascible but needy. Theroux, feigning lack of control but actually in total control. It's very sinister to watch now because Saville's impunity is so palpable, so sociopathic. Theroux, with his gentle curiosity and not at all obvious conversational direction. Why didn't Saville have an oven? Didn't he mind the years living with his mother because it meant he couldn't bring girls home? Drew out a man who had never had a relationship with a woman and didn't seem to have ever had any human feelings for one, except his mother. Theroux was basically showing us Norman Bates, which no one else had ever done. He does also ask Saville outright whether he's a paedophile and gets the non-answer that we live in a funny old world. In the end, there are some questions did you rape and sexually abuse multiple women and children and desecrate the dead which anyone can ask but only the criminal justice system can really nail down Nevertheless when the truth came out about Saville Theroux was haunted by it and wished he'd taken one of the victims with him to confront Saville He made a second film in 2016 speaking to victims and associates of Saville trying to figure out what he and the rest of society could have done differently to get the truth out of a pathological liar I do think that the in-plain-sight idea can be overdone. It's like what they say about quiz questions. It's only obvious if you know the answer, he says. That documentary made a huge impact on the whole concept of the celebrity interview because Jimmy Savile threw the doors open in a way that was surprising because even though he was over the hill, he was still very famous. Then we did Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee. That felt okay but maybe a little bit diminished because the doors weren't quite as open. Neil and Christine Hamilton became the subject of a police inquiry into a sexual assault accusation during the filming. They were cleared, but these 10-day interviews had set a new norm, that chat wasn't enough. The viewer had to come away with some extraordinary hunch or insight, even if you didn't know what it meant. Anyone at the top of their game is not going to say, come and hang out with me for 10 days, he says. And I was fine with it being defined as people who maybe weren't totally at the top of their game, although that wasn't quite how anyone wanted to position the series. Do you want to be part of a series that's about has-beens? So then we're having to slightly pretend it's not about people who are off the boil. Mm, I shouldn't say that, because maybe Christine Hamilton will read that and think she was totally on the boil. The other side effect was, of course, that when Louis met, made Theroux both award-winning and pretty famous which alters the dynamic. It would be as if the elephant started showing off in front of David Attenborough. It'd be cute, but would it be their authentic self? Actually, in certain ways, it's kind of helpful feeling a little bit known, he says. It means that people upped their game a bit. They were a bit friendlier with me. In the last series of Louis Theroux interviews, there's an interview with Stormzy that almost feels like actual friends role-playing an interview. I'd never met Stormzy before, he says which gives the encounter a little frisson, a kind of realness. But the truth is, I had had friendly contact with him online because I think I'd seen him wearing a Louis Theroux t-shirt in an Observer profile. Miranda Sawyer asked him about it in the interview with understandable incredulity and he said, Louis Theroux is a G. And then, of course, I was tickled beyond belief. I'm compelled to check whether Louis Theroux produces his own t-shirts or whether there's a rogue agent out there. No, no, I see no income from that. Am I a mug? Definitely in one sense. And probably in another. He has a production company, Mindhouse, with his wife Nancy Strang. They've got three children, which he introduces as his hedge against the possibility that TV ever has enough of him. There's a sense of security that comes from being involved in programmes that you don't actually present. So, if I took to YouTube or Rumble and started saying, the earth is flat... If I expressed my real views about geology and the construction of the universe, is the irony coming across? Not on the page, I say. Well, add it. If I came out and said something really weird on Rumble, and I was no longer viewed as brand safe, something I'm not intending to do, I could still be involved in making the programmes through Mindhouse. I've been doing this for 25, 30 years. There's no reason to think it'll end, but that doesn't mean it won't. I like that he scanned the horizon for any possible blot that would dent his popularity and the only thing he can think of would have to come from the inside of his head. The only victim would be reason. He has the peace of a person who hasn't made any enemies. But can that be true? God damn it, if I'd been Louis Theroux, I'd have asked him. That was Louis Theroux.
1: It's not rude to ask a question, it's rude to expect an answer. Read by Laura Shaven. Finally, Matthew Perry called himself a just add water addict, hooked on painkillers after a jet ski accident. Revisiting last year's shockingly frank memoir, detailing his ferocious substance abuse and onset drinking, L. Hunt concludes he seemed resigned to a young death. Read by Serena Manteghi. This article focuses on themes around addiction. Please take care while listening.
3: Matthew Perry was a friend to all. Known the world over as Chandler Bing, always seconds away from a great wisecrack and a show-stopping grin. But he was also an addict. That was the big terrible thing. Perry referenced in the title of his memoir last year, giving it equal weighting with the TV series that made him an indelible celebrity, long after he had largely retreated from screens. I read Friends, Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing last year and found it a jarring, often uncomfortable experience. It was one part juicy celebrity memoir enlivened by the flashes of humour and winning self-deprecation that Perry, by his own admission, shared with his defining character, and one part harrowing account of a man intent on his own destruction. Perry characterised himself as a ready-made, just-add-water addict, an alcoholic with his first drink at the age of fourteen, and hooked on painkillers with his first pill, "'prescribed after a jet-ski accident. "'High, he drove a red Mustang convertible across the desert, "'feeling complete and utter euphoria. "'I remember thinking, "'if this doesn't kill me, I'm doing this again.' "'It didn't, then.' "'Nearly a year to the day after "'Friends, Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing' was published, "'Perry was found dead at his Los Angeles home,' in an apparent drowning. He was 54. Tributes from his friends and fans have rightly focused on Perry's character and talent, with actors Morgan Fairchild, who played Perry's on-screen mother, mourning the loss of such a brilliant young actor and Mira Sorvino of his singular wit. Even the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who knew Perry as a boy, and whom Perry claimed in his memoir to have beaten up, paid tribute to the schoolyard games we used to play. Thanks for all the laughs, Matthew. Indeed, though Perry's career never took off beyond friends, he was arguably the standout performer in a talented cast of six. Any good-looking guy can be the smart aleck, cracking jokes in the corner, But Perry imbued Chandler with energy and emotional depth. Though defined by his deadpan delivery, Perry is right when he wrote that Chandler Bing transformed the way that America spoke. He also had exceptional comic timing and was a great physical performer. No one else has so effectively communicated combined dating anxiety and needing to pee. The fact that Perry managed to more or less keep it together over 10 seasons and 236 episodes, often while juggling ferocious substance abuse, is only further testament to his talent. The success of Friends, not to mention the support from his castmates, his real-life friends, was what helped him to survive, Perry wrote. There was no way I could have been a journeyman actor. I wouldn't have stayed sober for that. It was not worth not doing heroin for that. When you're earning $1 million a week, you can't afford to have the 17th drink. Perry also had a tricky part to play within the ensemble, in taking a platonic friendship between two cynics into a heartfelt romance. Chandler and Monica was Friends' central love story, with none of the cushioning contrivances and strategic breaks of the series' other pairings. In TV, as well as life, it's harder to make yourself vulnerable and offer love steadily than it is to give in to doubt and run hot and cool. Perry showed that the smart guy, even the mean guy, could also be the nice guy you'd do well to marry. In a series that has otherwise aged fairly poorly, Chandler and Monica are still an aspirational model for an equal partnership. As a teenager, I found it sweet when Chandler told Monica, they can say that you're high maintenance, but it's okay, because I like maintaining you. As a far from easygoing 30-something single woman, it is perhaps the most desirable declaration of love I've ever seen. It is no wonder Perry was so beloved for his character. For the longest time, he wrote, he experienced it as a burden, though he had lately reached some kind of peace with friends as his legacy. If you're going to be typecast, that's the way to do it. But at the widespread shock at his death, as the world woke up to the news on Sunday morning, you can picture Perry raising one quizzical eyebrow. As he wrote himself, I didn't stand a fucking chance. Harry might not have risked 17 drinks on set, but he would certainly try for 16. Especially during the later seasons of Friends, he was routinely drunk, high, or hungover on set, prompting concern from Jennifer Aniston. We can smell it, she said, in a kind of weird but loving way. Even a sober companion to shadow him at work proved insufficient safeguard. When a read-through was cut short by Perry's incoherence, the entire cast staged an intervention. When The One with Monica and Chandler's Wedding aired in May 2001, Perry was living in rehab. For all Perry's amusing celebrity anecdotes and determined good cheer, Friends, Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing reads primarily as an addiction memoir without an ending. Indeed, It read as though it had almost been written in real time. Perry's colon had exploded in July 2019, only three years before its publication, and in January 2022, he underwent his 14th surgery relating to his drug addiction. I finally have rock-hard abs, but they aren't from sit-ups, he wrote perkily. Perry described often the reward he drew from supporting other addicts, The best thing about me, bar none, is that I can help a desperate man get sober. Nonetheless, I was struck while reading it that the more recent timeline of Perry's using and abusing was somewhat opaque. It felt somewhat strategic, an attempt to obscure his current reality and lend heft to the suggestion that the worst of his troubles were behind him. But even Perry himself no doubt encouraged to come to a positive conclusion, could not find a more upbeat note with which to end on than the fact that he was alive at all. For all its gestures to sobriety, looking forward and moving into the future, the final chapter reads like Perry speaking from beyond the grave, reflecting on the faces of his loved ones as if he has already passed on. The world might be shocked at his untimely death. But Perry knew that his addiction was going to kill him. He told us in print a year ago, in a book that reached six figures in sales. Indeed, he wrote, his most surprising takeaway was that it hadn't already. There are two kinds of drug addicts, Perry wrote, of his preference for opiates over cocaine. The ones who want to go up and the ones who want to go down. I wanted to melt into my couch and feel wonderful. You can only hope that now, he is as close to happiness as he felt that morning in the red Mustang.
1: That was An Alcoholic from the Age of 14, Matthew Perry's Troubled Life and Foreshadowed Death by L. Hunt, read by Serena Mantegui. If you need any support following this article, we'll include links on the episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Serena Manteghi and Laura Shavin and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Biori. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening.
0: This is The Guardian.
2: of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it.